Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted, we keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. In our last episode, which was part two of our three-part series on criminal legal reform, we got a chance to sit down with the amazing Fox and Rob Rich. Um, I may have to go back and rename that title, rename that show, Love is Rich. Um, We talked about so many things, about the work that they're doing in participatory defense, um, around clemency, and really around abolition. We got to hear the story of Mama Glow um, and the work that we need to do to uh, advocate for her freedom. Um, And then we also got to hear about how this family, who has endured 21 years of incarceration, um, has still grown together during separation. And I don't know about you, that's inspiring to me. So it's been quite a journey. When I um, imagine starting this podcast. I never imagined we'd both be hit by a pandemic and be in the midst of uh, an uprising. Um, But at last we are here. Um, And so it is no shock to many of my guests or myself um, what we are experiencing in our country every day for many of them, myself included, you know, this is the work that we uh, get up to do every single day. Um, but nonetheless, this moment in time is extremely heavy. So today we are going to be closing all our three-part series, but we are not stopping the conversation about criminal legal reform. Um, but I'm really excited to have um, my next guest on the show to push our thinking even further. So we are going to have Sarita Steib. Sarita is a graduate of Louisiana State University Health and Sciences Center with a national certification and license as a clinical laboratory scientist. She is a mother, a wife, and the co-founder and executive director of Operation Restoration, which she founded in 2016, or was built as a support system for women impacted by incarceration and committed to providing currently and formerly incarcerated women with the resources necessary to sustain their transition home um, and to pursue higher education, employment training, job placement, case management, and advocacy services. I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, how did a clinical laboratory scientist make up her mind to begin an organization like this one? Well, I'm not going to steal the thunder because Sarita is going to share her story. At the age of 19, she was sentenced to 120 months in federal prison, 20 years in state prison, and $1.9 million of restitution, stemming from charges of auto theft from a dealership in Texas that was burned down in the process. For five years, she was moved from one facility to the next and struggled with anger and misplaced feelings. 
It was not until she arrived in Tallahassee, Florida, that the dreams of a college education seemed closer to her grasp as college courses were offered. Fast forward and 10 years later, Sarita returns home ready to start her life and finish her degree with 30 credits under her belt from Tallahassee Community College. But she was quickly faced with a new obstacle when she was denied by the University of New Orleans. Her husband encouraged her to try again two years later, and within 24 hours of applying, she was accepted. What was different, you ask? What she did not do was check the box. We're going to learn more about that box later. Today, Sarita is the helm of her own organization, which focuses on four main issues. Education of those who have been connected to the criminal justice system, policy connected to criminal justice reform, direct services for those impacted by this system, and fiscal sponsorship to other groups doing similar work in our communities. She was recently featured in Essence Magazine in 2019 in an article entitled, She the People, Sarita Stein Martin, Operation Restoration, and the Changing System of Mass Incarceration, One Woman at a Time. Since 2017, Sarita has helped draft and pass legislation in five states, including Louisiana. She also regularly speaks at conferences around the nation about the experiences of incarcerated women. So now the other part of this dynamic duel is my my good, good friend, Dauphinette Martin. Dauphinette is the operations manager at Operation Restoration. She is a mother of five. Her work in the community is extensive and started when she began working at the New Orleans Vera Institute office. Yes, the very office of my first guest on the show in this series, Will Snowden. Martin has um, done a combined 12 years in prison with her first arrest in 1996 as a 17-year-old. However, after her release from prison in 2012, she made a vow to never return. At age 42, for the first time, she thought about furthering her education, and she earned a college degree in 2015. She now serves on the formerly incarcerated Transitional Clinic Advisory Board, a clinic created for formerly incarcerated people, and she's a panelist on the Criminal Background Check Review Panel for the Housing Authority of New Orleans. Dauphinette was appointed to New Orleans' first female transition team of New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell. In 2018, she was appointed to Essence Festival's first ever, ever all-female criminal justice reform panel. She was a founding member and former president of the New Orleans chapter of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. She sets a powerful example for her children, her grandchildren, and her community, and for me. She is frequently asked to contribute her knowledge, expertise, and wisdom on panels and in media. She is a recipient of the John Thompson Leadership for Change Award and the Graduates Freedom Fighter Award. Dauphinet is an equal partner in Tulane University's Per Sister Exhibition. She helped create the first Women's Gathering Fellowship for Women of Color with the Center for Community Change, and it is one of the first um, 10 cohort members. She also contributed to her expertise to help the Power Coalition She Leads Fellowship, which also focuses on women of color and on the ground organizing. Based on her legislative ad advocacy, Governor John Bell Edwards appointed her to sit on the Louisiana Women's Incarceration Task Force. You all are in for a treat. I am so excited to have 
these amazing women and my great friends here on our podcast with us today. Dolphinette and Sarita, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So happy that you're here. So before we jump in, um, our audience has heard all about the amazing work that you do, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about it. But I want to start off by asking you some questions about um, yourself. So tell me one thing that people probably wouldn't know about you or wouldn't expect. Sarita, you want to go first? Yes, I can go first. Uh, One thing that I think that people don't really know about me is I really love rock and roll music. So I'm a huge ACDC fan and Aerosmith. Nice, nice. All right. And what about you, Dolphinette? What's one thing folks would not know about you? I would say uh, (laughs) that uh, I'm afraid of the dark. Yeah, I, I'm afraid of the dark when I'm <laughs> by right, myself. That's interesting. That's interesting. That's, that's, that is definitely something I did not know about you. And Serena, I'm happy to know there's another rock and roll fan because I also have an eclectic love of music. All right. So we are here to really pick up our conversation on race and incarceration. Um, And I really wanted to make sure that we made space in this conversation to really talk about women in this space and the work that you all are doing at Operation Restoration. But before we jump into the conversation about incarceration, I want to pause to recognize the moment we're in in our country. Um, We are experiencing protests all around our country in response to the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, as well as Aubrey um, Ahmad as and, and many, many others. Um, so what are y'all thoughts today? Um, I think we are in week two of these protests. Um, and for many of us who do this work every day, um, it's an interesting time to be leading social justice work. What are y'all's reflections on this moment? Uh, for me, Takima, you know, I've thought a lot about this over the past couple of weeks, as you said. Uh, and one of the things that has really been screaming in my spirit is uh, the question of what is justice, right? Uh, we're protesting and oftentimes, you know, our chant is no justice, no peace, Uh, But internally, in my spirit, I am constantly wondering these days, like, what is justice? What what would be enough? Mm -hmm. You know, what would be enough to uh, satisfy the consequence of what we all saw? Uh, and let's be clear, that's just the one that we saw. Right. This happens every day. Mm-hmm. And so what is that justice that we're uh, asking for? Because, you know, for me, it used to be, uh, you know, our our people, you know, there was a time when we could say our black men. But now it's our people. 
All of are us. incarcerated at a high rate. Uh, and our women are leading the growth in incarceration. And so, you know, there was a time when we would think about, you know, justice would be the exact same punishment you would give me. Uh, it's what I expect for that crime committed by a white person. But I am being asked to not believe what it is we all saw. Right. Right. Right? And so, you know, what is justice? What is enough? And the other part of that is, you know, I hear debates all the time and I I definitely do not get into them when it comes to, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, It's not, you know, I don't feel the need to explain why I say Black Lives Matter. But for you and for this audience, I'll say that when we say Black Lives Matter, what we're saying is they matter too. Yes. Not that they're the only lives that matter, but they matter too. Uh, white lives matter. Black lives matter. This this blue lives matter. All lives matter. And when we say that black lives matter, we're just saying we matter too. Right. Right. And we want you to recognize that we matter too. And if you don't recognize it, we're going to make you recognize it. And when our traumas show up, because, you know, in the work that Sarita and I do around women in incarceration, every woman that's been incarcerated or in a detention center and some kind of confinement that comes from trauma. Right. And so our people are struggling. We're suffering. We're traumatized. And that particular murder, George Floyd's murder was for the world to see. And so there's no more, uh, well, is that really what happened? Well, what did he do? Well, you know, well, you know, he has however many convictions. None of that matters. Not like it ever did. You know, like when Alton Sterling was brutally murdered, you know, the first thing that was talked about was his convictions. And so I remember asking uh, Sarita, this question, I said, so so uh, are, are people saying that because I, Dolphinette, have 10 shoplifting convictions, I deserve to be murdered? That's, that's what they're saying? With no with, trial. With no trial. <laughs> with with no, no due process. No, no nothing. Nothing. Right? Uh, so, you know, where I am today is is that, you know, my heart, my soul, my spirit is broken. Uh, and it's broken because here we are again. Yeah. Here we are once again. And there's still folk saying, <laughs> well, you know, there's due process. See, there's due process afforded to, to them. You know, and and we won't even talk about the fact that he was a police officer. No, he was a person. He was a a person that committed a crime. 
But to add fuel to that fire, he was a police officer who was had a sworn duty to uphold the law. And he chose not to. And so what is justice? Yeah. Sarita Dolph has, as she always do, as she always does, right? She is uh, centered um, this conversation. What are your thoughts? Where Where is your mind? Where's your heart? Where's your spirit? Um, both of you are mothers. So how are you reflecting on, on this, Sarita? Um, so for me, it's, I always feel like I have a way of putting things into words and I can articulate how I feel and really find awesome and amazing ways to express myself. But it's like this situation has put me in a place where I'm like, I don't want to, you know, I want to say this is some bull. I want to say that I'm tired. I want to say that I'm afraid for my son to grow up, you know, in this country um, and I can say that I'm not in the mood to peacefully protest, you know, so um, normally I'm out there and I'm protesting and I'm fighting and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. As you, you know, said earlier, this is something that we do every day. It's not something that because an event happens that we're out there. But normally this would have been the time where I would have been out and I would have speak been speaking about what this means and being the voice of, you know, our movement or whatever. But I don't feel like it because I don't feel like being peaceful. And I'm like, before I go out and ruin those folks' things and what they got going on, I'm going to just stay at home, support with some money, whatever they need, make sure they have supplies and those things and encourage like our team to go out and protest. But um, I'm just not in that place. I'm angry. Um, I'm upset. And I know that all of this was precipitated, you know, by the death of George Floyd. But you know, in Louisiana, they're not even talking about Jefferson Parish that same week. Mm-hmm. You know, two mm-hmm. men were killed at the hands of two Jefferson Parish police officers. And there are conflicting stories. You know, there was a march to uh, and a protest at the steps of the Jeff- Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. And the ask was that the police wear body cams. And I'm like, that's all we asking for? That that's the ask of this protest? Body cams? Like, that's the least that they could do. Like, what is, what, like, we're not aiming higher. Like, we feel like that's all that is, you know, required is body cams, you know? And so it really just has me um, in a place that I'm unfamiliar with um, and not comfortable with. And then also, we have a lot of white women who we work with and support us and, you know, work at the organization. And we know that they feel and they believe as we do. Um, and they call and they check on me and they're like, Hey, Sarita, I just want you to know that I'm here. Put me to work. Let me know what you need me to do. And I'm like, I know it's not you guys, you know, um, but it's your relatives, it's your uncles and your brothers and the kids and whomever else that have these views. And it's like your duty to bring them over to where you are. So, um, it's been a really isolating space for me. And it's something that I'm not particularly used to. Um, it really has put me in a space where I I really don't know why I am feeling the way that I'm feeling and why it is so important for me to be in solitude right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and just even thinking about in Louisiana, you're not only dealing with COVID and 
and then the murder of George Floyd, the murder of the two young men that were here in Jefferson Parish. But then it's like the start of hurricane season. It's like, okay, all of this yeah. at one time, and you're supposed to juggle and articulate how you feel and what's going on. It's just like, I'm angry and I'm upset. <laughs> Welcome to being Black in America in 2020, right? It's just coming one thing after another. So I want to make sure our audience um, really understands the connection between these protests, the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, and others, and the work that you all do at Operation Restoration on incarceration. So I want to make sure that throughout this conversation that we really draw the connection for folks on the connection between police brutality and police um, injustice and what is happening inside of the criminal legal system um, that continues to harm Black and Brown people. So I would love if, Sarita, you give us a little overview of the work you all do at Operation Restoration. Tell us a little bit about how the work got started um, and describe for us um, the, the things that you all are currently working on. Sure. Uh, at Operation Restoration, currently, uh, it was founded in 2016 uh, by myself, a formerly incarcerated woman who, at the age of 19, went to prison and I was released at the age of 29. So I had dreams of doing different things upon my release. I wanted to go to medical school and, you know, just different things. So I went back to college. I graduated from LSU with a degree in clinical laboratory science. But that whole process was just so hard, you know, with so many barriers. Like when I applied to go to college, I had to check the box on the application um, at UNO and I was denied entrance into the university. I couldn't prove at that time based on my criminal conviction, but um, I knew in the back of my mind that's what it was because while I was incarcerated and I had an opportunity at the last uni um, prison that I was at, they allowed Tallahassee Community College to come in and do college courses. And I had a 3.87 GPA with those 30 hours of credit that I had. And, you know, I took all of the tests that I needed to take to make sure that I was on par to be able to be admitted to the university. So I couldn't understand, like, when I was in prison or when I got sentenced, they never said like a collateral consequence of being convicted of a crime is like, you won't have a right to an education. You won't have a right to vote. You won't have a right to bear arms, you know, just all of these things. So I went through so many things trying to re-enter and better myself. And it was in 2009 when I got out, which a lot of time from Katrina hadn't passed. So there weren't any organizations that were focusing on helping women to get the things that they needed. Like I had no help with getting my license or my birth certificate, looking for a job, learning the city all over again. Everything that existed prior to me going in that anchored me to the community no longer existed. I often tell a joke about how when I got out, all I wanted was a glazed donut from McKinsey's and a stuffed bell pepper from Triangle Deli. And when I got out, they weren't open. They didn't exist, you know? So that feeling for me was just like one of tremendous grief and loss because the things that I came out expecting were not there and then there was no one there to help me deal with that reality mm -hmm. except other women who had been incarcerated and were now in New Orleans so you know 
One helped me apply for school. One helped me with my first job, getting my my apartment. You know, they walk me through these processes and they it was just because they knew how hard it was for them. But there wasn't anything organized to help me with those things. And uh, I applied to the University of New Orleans again two years later and I got in. And the only thing that I changed was I unchecked the box. And that's when I knew that, you know, that's when I found out a lot of the 5,000, you know, collateral consequences of being a formerly um, incarcerated person or being convicted of a crime placed on you, you know, and all of the things that you lose access to. And um, I vowed at that moment that I would go on to do what I needed to do, but that I would also, you know, figure something out like this had to change. It wasn't, you know, acceptable. And um, I didn't know what that was going to be. I had an opportunity in 2016 to start traveling and speaking with this national organization um, of other formerly incarcerated women around the country and work that they were doing. And that's when I realized that this could be a thing, like you could actually organize something formally and help people. Um, Mm -hmm. I had been doing it informally for a long time. Like people, when they get out, I would send clothes in or send money or do what you can because you spend lifetimes with these people. I grew up in prison, you know? So a lot of those women who had a hand in making me the woman that I am today, they were getting out and then they needed my help. So informally, I always wanted to help but I didn't know that you could formally do it. So I like to say that even though the organization started in 2016, it didn't really take off until I met some other key components, uh, you know, to make the organization run, Dolphinette being one, Annie being another. And when we all came together, you know, we took off. And Operation Restoration, as it is today, was kind of born. We run 15 programs inside the organization, and it ranges from rapid response to taking care of issues for people in real lifetime, all the way to policy and advocacy. We work on housing. We bond folks out of jail who are unable to pay their bonds. We focus on um, helping people get jobs. We focus on giving them direct services, things that they need, education. We have a college and prison program. We also have a GED equivalency um, program that we offer in the community where people can sit for their GED once they finish the clinic. So what we quickly realized was our focus initially was education. But if people have all of these other barriers, education is not even attainable if you have childcare issues or you're suffering from housing issues or food insecurity issues. So we try at the organization to remove as many barriers as possible for women and girls who have been impacted by the system so that they could successfully re-enter, you know, society. Um, it's one thing I believe in my core that if you give a person an opportunity, but you're not invested in making sure that they can take advantage of the opportunity, it's as if you haven't given them the opportunity at all. So we're really, really invested in making sure that people can take advantage of the opportunities. If that means bringing someone to a job interview, buying the uniforms or shoes, whatever it is, we are invested in making sure that women can get out and stay out and become successful, reunite with their children, their families, whatever that looks like, you know, for that particular individual. And we take it on a case by case basis. And we have just been tremendously blessed as well as successful in, um, you know, changing lives of women because we all had to change our lives. 80% of the staff is formally incarcerated or has been involved in some t- in the legal system in some way. Um, and we have people who have done 
we like to say weekends in prison, even though it might be a year or two. So, you know, your OGs who've done 20, 30 years, you know. Um, so we have a, a really vast majority of experience um, and we have 14 full time staff members currently and about 20, 21 contractors across the country because we do federal policy work as as well as local state policy work. And um, we're just trying to do what we can um, and as much as we can. Awesome. Dauphinette, will you tell us um, sort of what brought you to Operation Restoration, your story um, and how it connects with the story and the mission of Operation Restoration? Sure. So uh, I myself, a formerly incarcerated woman, uh, did a combined 12 years in prison. And uh, I remember when I was released this last time, I, I did seven years, four months, 28 days, my last, this last time, which was in 2012 is when I was released. And I knew, you know, like, like Sarita said, you know, I knew I wanted something else. I just didn't know how to go about getting that something else. Right. Uh, cause for a long time, uh, to came the, you know, what I knew was what I knew. Mm-hmm. Right. And so once I gained access to something different, I began to know and understand that there were, there was another way of life. Right. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about recidivism and, you know, people having the same opportunities. And we all know that's not the truth. Uh, but, you know, I thought that the, the things that I was doing to survive in this world were the things that everybody was doing. Uh, and when I was released and I couldn't find a job, uh, at, at 42 years old, I found myself for the first time even uh, thinking about college. And, and that was because while I was in, I began to educate myself. I knew if I wanted a shot at anything, anything uh, good, this time, I had to educate myself. So I got my GED while I was in. I took this trade. Uh, it was office systems technology. Because what I did understand was when I was released, I was going to need to know how to use a computer. And, and I didn't. And so, you know, I had this professor when I was inside who who saw, you know, the, the grades that I was making. Like, like Sarita said, you know, it was never that we were not academically enhanced. It's that we were moving from spaces of trauma. And she, she, she approached me one day and she, she shared with me that when I was released, she wanted me to go on and go to college and get my degree in that same uh, major. And so my question to her, and I'll never forget it, I was like, how? You know, I'm poor. I don't have any money because, you know, in my mind, in my true heart of hearts, I thought that black people that went to college came from a two parent household and they had money. The the Huxtables. And that was exactly what I shared with Sarita. I said, you know, 
The Huxtables were the only people that I saw that had that. I was living more like good times, right? And she kind of chuckled. And, and then there was this aha moment for her that, like, she's serious. I never knew that we went to college. That's not what I saw in my community, right? So came home, couldn't find employment. So I went over to, to Delgado and I applied and I, you know, I got in and, you know, I started going to these meetings that the Housing Authority of New Orleans was having around this whole criminal background review thing, right? And, you know, they ended up, you know, getting a contract with this organization to redo this policy. But within that contract, there was these monies for them to hire someone from Section 3, which was, you know, low income, the community that I was from. And it was an internship. I applied for the internship. And to Kima, I have to be transparent and honest. I only applied because the pay was $15 an hour. I knew nothing about the work. Uh, I interviewed and I, I, I got the, that internship. And so then I started finding out uh, what this organization was doing. Uh, it was Vera Institute of Justice, I, I must say. And I started to pay attention to the work that they were doing. And I remember I started going to these meetings, right? Everywhere there was something going on around incarceration, I was showing up and I would always see this other lady, right? And we would be the only two in the room screaming, kicking and fighting about, well, when are we gonna have the conversation about women who are incarcerated, right? And, you know, lo and behold, that other woman was to, was was Sarita. And, you know, I didn't know her. She didn't know me. Ironically, we had the same last name. And <laughs> I started noticing every room I was in and they were talking about incarceration. One, they weren't talking about women. And two, she was in that room screaming, fighting and kicking like me. When are we going to have these conversations about women? And so her and I started having conversations. And I remember she came up with this idea because, you know, to, uh, to Kima, you know, I shared with you and I'll share with the audience because, you know, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So when I was released after almost eight years from prison, my first night out, I didn't have a change of underwear. Right. And I remember having these conversations with Sarita and how she didn't know what her bra size was. And so she had this idea about creating this closet where when women was released, they could come and get these things. Uh, you know, they were slightly used clothes. Underwear would always be new, but there would be shoes and clothes and personal hygiene items that they could just come and get, you know, which were the things I didn't have my first night out that society thought my family would provide. And so I started collecting clothes from people. She started collecting clothes from people. And we watched, you know, I know I watched that idea that she had grow into this organization that she now talked about previously, Operation Restoration. Now, I left Vera. I went on to work for another organization, but still wasn't the focus on women. And though I was doing what I love to do, which was the work, there was something missing. 
And so, you know, me and Topeka, I mean, Topeka, Sarita, like she said, there was this national movement of women. We would fly to different states. And mind you, I had never been anywhere outside of Louisiana. Uh, and I met other sisters who were formerly incarcerated. And then I realized this is a thing, right? And so, you know, I watched Sarita go to a full-time job. I watched her leave a full-time job, be at the Capitol, leave the Capitol, go to her organization. And I was just there for the journey, supporting her in any way that I could while working at another organization. But also, as I say, something was missing. And that thing that was missing, I finally realized, Takima, was that the focus wasn't around women like myself. See, there's a very specific focus when it comes to women and incarceration. Because, see, when I came home, though I had nowhere to live, you know, I could have went by one of the relatives, but, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be a burden. I left five children, and so relatives raised those children. I came home to adults. I had one child that was still underage, and she was disabled. So I came home and I had to take custody and, and provide for that still underage child. Right. With nothing. So then I went and I lived with my mom and hid in her house with my disabled child. But I never missed the opportunity to be in those rooms with Sarita because I saw this thing going somewhere. And then there was this thing called... Uh, Reentry became the hot topic, <laughs> right? And so though me and Sarita was already fighting, screaming and kicking, somebody realized that there was some money in women and reentry and incarceration, right? And so what they did was they noticed those two women that was fighting and screaming and kicking at every meeting they had. And we were saying, when y'all gonna talk about women? They invited us to tables to talk about women. Fast forward, Sarita, she promised me when she said, sis, we're we going to work together. We're working together, but we're going to work together. And, you know, as, as God would have it, she, uh, she brought me on to her team. You know, and the rest is history. All right. So I want to get into some of this history because I am, first of all, love you both dearly as my sisters um, in the work, but in life. Um, you teach me. Love you back. <laughs> I continue to love to cheer you all on and watch you all grow. And I am so excited about this new venture um, that you all are just getting into. I don't want to steal the thunder. So Dauphinette, will you talk a little bit about the newest work, extension of the work of, of Operation Restoration? And it, it brings me back to when this was just a dream you had that you shared with me a while ago. So I'm excited that the audience gets to hear about it today. Before she tells you about the new venture, I just want to say that you know, Takima, I've told you this before, but I don't know if you really understand, like, the one room that you invited me to, to be able to, like, have a platform and be able to speak on things, 
is the reason why, you know, we are like a, a big part of the reason why we are where we are today. Like that one conversation in that room at that funders convening um, where you have me and Daryl speaking, it literally changed the trajectory of the organization. And it allowed me to do things with Dolphinette and grow out the organization and the program. So I just want to make sure that I really ground this conversation and want you to also enjoy in the fruits of how this organization has been built out because without you having the the wherewithal to say I want you in this room and you need to be heard in this room things would not be where they are today I feel as quickly as they have grown and like you are one of the the main catalysts behind it so any chance that I get to say Thank you. We appreciate you. Um, this is a part of your legacy as well. I just want to take the time to actually like say that mm-hmm. because had it not been for that particular occasion, you wouldn't be seeing what you're seeing today. So I just I have to tell you thank you. Well, I appreciate that, Sarita. I really do. And I just want to say a couple of things. And I've said these things to you, but I think it's important for the audience to understand we all play a role. We all play a role. And as long as we are playing our role, whether it is to open doors, open windows, um, to give what we can, things like that can happen. So I'm just appreciative that I was positioned to do those things and that you all continue to allow me to be part of the journey. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the closet. I'm a big fan um, of uh, the work that uh, Dolphinette is about to share with us. And again, like, I just think it's all of our responsibility to play our role. And I appreciate that y'all are doing this work so that when I do have an opportunity to connect investors, I know exactly who to call and who to direct them to. Um, And the other part of it is I think it's important for folks in our audience to understand, Sarita, your story, Dolphinette's story could have been any of our stories, any of our stories, right? And so I always remember that. There were choices along my journey that I could have made that could have ended me in different places. And I want to put that out there because in this conversation, I need everybody to understand (laughs) that none of us should be judged or punished by, you know, the worst decision we've ever made in life. And many of us, but um, for the grace of God, would have shared in those same experiences. So I think it's very, very important. Um, And because of that, I feel like it is my duty whenever I can um, to open a door, a window, because the privilege of being positioned to do so means I have a responsibility to my sisters. But us as Black women, Takima, a lot of times, um, and I I share this story, it's two things I want to say. One is I had the opportunity when I was growing up to have my mom change how I viewed things as far as um, I used to say, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a sportscaster and I wanted to take Pam Oliver's job. That's what I used to say, like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to take her job. And my mom was like, why would you want to take her job? Why would you not want to work with her? And not really understanding in the moment how society had shaped our views of there's only room for one black woman. 
you know, and that we are immediately when we walk in a room in competition with one another. And that is not something that we come on earth believing. It is something that we are taught. It is something that we are desensitized to. It is a way of life because everything that we read, write, watch, look at shapes that viewpoint of it's only room for one. Right. And I always tell people, if you give me access, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do what I need to do. And it's just about you making sure that your sisters have access to the things that they need access to. It's so amazing because it doesn't happen often. So I have been committed to when I go into the room with other black women that are fighting and trying to get their space and their time that I'll take a back seat because I know what it is to be in competition and I refuse to compete with a sister in public, you know, Um, but I'm going to get me, but I don't have to do it in competition with her. Right. And then the second thing I want to say is to the point of like you, you can never judge a book by its cover. I think me and Dolphinette are great examples of how we come from two totally different backgrounds, two socioeconomic backgrounds, two different upbringings. Because when I went to prison, my mom was a judge. I had a Benz at 15. So material things I had access to, but we both ended up in the same place due to trauma. So for me, it's always important to let people know that people that go to jail are not always from a particular background. Or like you said, it could be any of us, but through the grace of God. And I say all the time, like I was guilty when I went to, I did exactly what they said I did, but if they had caught me for everything I've ever done, it would be totally different. You know, I might not be talking to y'all today. So the thing is, is that realizing what happens in times and spaces can happen to anyone, irrespective of where, you start. And I think that that is very important for the audience to understand too, because the reason why I chuckled when Dolphinette mentioned the thing about education was because I had no concept that people grew up and did not know that education was available because my dad was a, you know, graduated from Nickel State University. He had a degree. He taught school for a while. Then he became an operator in a plant. He was rose up the ranks at Marathon. And my mom was an attorney when I was younger and then became a judge. So education from the time I could remember was always important in my household. So I didn't have a concept of education not being available to everybody. So even the way that we started the organization changed because I knew that everybody's access was not the same as mine. And Dolphinette helped to reshape that for me by bringing in her experiences, you know, because we talk about a lot of times, like one thing is I had a conversation with someone who said, I don't understand why people who are victims of domestic violence don't just leave, right? Why they just don't leave. And Dolphin, what Dolphinette helped me to understand in the way that I answered this woman was, if you have never seen a woman in your life stand up for herself or walk out or fight for herself, That is a concept that is as foreign as living on Mars. It's not even a thought. You don't even know how to get your mind to that level because you've never seen it. You've never witnessed it. You don't even know it exists. So the reason why people don't leave is because they don't know that they can. Right. Right. You know, and um, had I not met Dolphinette along that journey around education, I would have never understood that because I thought everybody knew education was accessible, you know? Yeah. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens <laughs> iron. And that's what we're doing here. All right, Dolph, we, they, we, we've had them waiting. So can you tell <laughs> us a little about this next venture um, 
uh, in terms of operations, restorations, partnerships? Sure. So uh, we have uh, partnered with the Ladies of Hope Ministries, uh, which is uh, Topeka Case Sam's organization in New York City to open up Hope House NOLA. There's a Hope House New York City, and she's expanded here to Louisiana, specifically New Orleans, to uh, open up a safe living house for women. Uh, the partnership is between Operation Restoration and the loan, and uh, it's a beautiful uh, five-bedroom home with a big above-ground pool and yard in a nice neighborhood, you know, and because it's a safe house, I will not disclose. But women come can come here uh, and transition from here into society. And- Welcome back, Warriors. By now, you know we have a few rules on the show. Number one, we keep it real. Number two, you've got to be an active listener. There is no progress without the work. So today we put in the work. Text the phrase CHANGE, C-H-A-N-G-E, to 504-676-5393. That's my personal number, and I'm going to be waiting to text you back. Again, the number is 504-676-5393. I'll respond with a link to the website where you can get more information on today's topic, and about what you can do to move the movement. All right, y'all. So for today's Code Switch segment, I just really want to recap the conversation I had with Dolphinette and Sarita today. So it's important uh, that we understand that there is a business to this work. And when we talk about the tagline, the business of social justice, part of what we're trying to play around with this idea that there is money that is involved, right? That there is money and that that money is connected to power. And so one of the things that, you know, you hear in this set of interviews is that there is lots of money, whether it be bail fines and fees, whether it be the conversation about who is profiting off of the criminal legal system, or if we even think about this conversation of reentry and those folks who are making a business off of reentry. Um, the other piece that I, I really hope that you heard and we're bringing forward to you is by sharing the stories of folks like Fox and Rob or Dolphinette and Sarita, that you understand that socioeconomic status when you are Black in America in many ways doesn't matter. Um, but incarceration, being ensnared in this system and made by this system As a Black person in America, you just have a higher chance of being impacted um, and impacted inequitably. Um, And so I think that's really, really, really important to to understand. Um, The other piece is, you know, to lift up the ways in which folks have emerged valiantly from these experiences with a mission and a vision um, to free their people. Um, And whether it is the closet um, idea that Operation Restoration um, has created, which is now 
emerged into um, their the home, the space that they're creating for women coming home. Um, it's these types of things that we want to lift up and show you on this show, show you how folks um, are digging deep and using you know, their experiences, albeit negative, um, and turning those things into positive things in community, using their stories to uplift the injustices and the inequities, um, and then turning that into service to folks who are coming through those experiences themselves. And lastly, you know, one of the piece, one of the reasons why I wanted to have Fox Dauphinette and Sarita here with me because I think it's really important um, that we we understand that this isn't about competition. This really is about how can we all support each other um, in the work that we do? What does it look like for all of us to play a part in the larger social justice work? And how do we complement and support each other as opposed to compete? There is too much work to do. The work of freedom is too important for us to be in competition with each other. And I understand that given the way that resources flow, who gets them, who doesn't get them, it often sets us up in that space. I have fallen victim myself to that in moments, but I'm reminded through the relationships that I have, um, particularly with other women, but with everyone, um, that it's really important that we find ways to complement each other, to lift each other up. Um, and that in many ways, that is at the root of the work of freedom. So I hope you continue to listen. Um, and I hope you got a lot out of this series. We are definitely not abandoning the conversation of criminal legal reform. Uh, we're going to be talking about it throughout our various conversations. But I really wanted to start this podcast um, and hit hard with, I think, an issue that is right on time in our country at this point and really look um, at the system of criminal legal reform and introduce you to some amazing visionaries who, you know, are using again, you know, their negative experiences and turning those into something positive in our community. So that's all the time we have here in WBOK, but obviously this is not the end of the conversation with Sarita and Dolphinette. So we don't want to leave you hanging. Head over to www.convergeforchange.com to hear more about their newest venture, Hope House NOLA, how they've navigated during COVID, and how to keep in touch with the work that they're doing at Operation Restoration. Visit us again at www.converge4forchange.com and find the bonus episode under the podcast tab. One last thing, I really want to implore all of you all to take good care of yourself. This has been an extremely intense time in our community, and self-care is something you'll help me talk about quite a bit. For me, it's a necessity. I know I cannot serve others. I can't serve myself. I can't serve my family unless I am emotionally and physically well. So we're going to talk about what it means to take care of ourselves as a part of our activism. And so I really hope over the next week, all of you all can find a little time to sit with yourselves, um, to move your bodies, to eat good food, um, and just love on yourself and one another. So until next time, I am Takima. Hey you, are you following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? 
You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com under the podcast tab. Follow me on social media on Facebook at Converge for F-O-R Change on Instagram at I am Takima and at Converge for Change. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast library like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also catch the show live on WBOK1230.com or if you're in New Orleans, just adjust your radio to WBOK1230 AM every Saturday from 12 to 1 p.m.